Welcome to the Iowa Agronomy Update, where we talk all things agronomics. I'm your host, Brent Schwinnaker, and this podcast is brought to you by Asgro DeKalb Brand Seeds. Hey everyone, and welcome back to a new edition of the Iowa Agronomy Update. Uh, it's been a few weeks here, and we're getting uh, into uh, state fair time, and so it uh, uh, means that we're uh, wrapping up here the uh, downhill slide of our crop season. So, um, but we've had some important topics that we wanted to get on the on the podcast, and so uh, it's led me north uh, to Ames today, and uh, we're joined by Aaron Hodgson today. Aaron, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. No, thanks a lot for for joining the podcast, and really, uh, it's great to have you on. And and so. Um, your title is uh, Associate Professor Extension Entomologist, correct? Yep, that's right. Give us a little background. Has it been 10 years at Iowa State now? Is yeah, that about it, right? It's been 10 years as of April. So, oh, okay, yep, good. So, yep, it hit that decade point. Good, 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 good. <laughs> so, it's been been uh, been a quick 10 years, I'm sure. And really, um, we, we ventured north here to interview today and really wanted to go through, you know, a couple topics for sure. And, and we'll maybe see if we have time to dabble in. Uh, into some more. Uh, but first off, why don't you give us a background of, of you know, your um, education and what led you to Iowa State and, and how things have been treating you in Iowa? Sure. Um, I grew up in western North Dakota, so west of Bismarck in a, in a small town called Dickinson. And I made my way east for college and I went to NDSU, North Dakota State in Fargo for my undergrad, which was in biology. And then I got a master's at NDSU in entomology, where I worked on sunflower. And I actually worked on sunflower midge, which mm. I think we're going to touch mm. back on midges in, yeah. a, in a little bit. And then um, in, in 2001, I moved to St. Paul, Minnesota, where I got my Ph.D. at the University of Minnesota, working on a new invasive pest in North America, soybean aphid. Oh. So I was one of the first <laughs> graduate students in the U.S. to work on this new invasive pests where I spent, you know, the next four years working out thresholds, spray timings, scouting, that kind of thing. And after graduation, I worked at Utah State University as an extension entomologist for three years where I worked in alfalfa and turf. And then I took kind of a hard right <laughs> when I, yeah. I came to Iowa State back to Midwest and back to regular row crops or not regular. Well, Tradition. Well, yeah, traditional. traditional so, right? so corn and soybean. <laughs> and you know, the first 10 years, probably my research had been 90, 95% soybean aphid. So still looking at efficacy, still looking at timing and management, adding a few new tactics like host plant resistance and a few other things. You know, in the last 10 years, we've had pyrethroid resistance and, and a few other things pop up. So that's been the majority of my research program. Extension, I cover, you know, anything in corn and soybean has six or eight legs. You know, I try and help people understand sure. ID, scouting, and management. Great. Well, welcome back to the Midwest now <laughs> after the, the hard right turn and glad, yeah. glad to have you back here in our yeah. traditional row crops. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you dab dabble a little bit more than just corn and soy, but um you know Aaron as we as a season got off to a, a late start right and I yeah. and I kind of thought for sure that you know nothing nothing this season will over overcome the the topic of um wet late season planting yeah and then all of a sudden this thistle caterpillar came along mm -hmm. and I think said kind of 
here, hold my beer and watch this, right? <laughs> so, you know, so what, you know, tell us about, you know, why, why 2019 yeah. is this all of a sudden a primary pest, right? I right. mean, so, I mean, it, I've had numerous agronomists tell me I've never had a call on this ever mm-hmm. to now we're looking at possible third generation. So give us a, some background there, what we know there. Sure. Um, what I do know about this pest, I haven't, I haven't done any research on this pest. It mostly has just been casual observation and looking into the historical records is we have thistle caterpillar every year in Iowa and they don't overwinter here. And so even though we had the polar vortex, we had cool wet springs, um, like many other insects that migrate to Iowa, they didn't care about any of that. And so Hmm. they had a good overwintering uh, uh, cycle down in the south and the southwest where that's where they spend the winter. So the good strong numbers and they migrated here when they usually do, which is mid-June. And so usually we can find caterpillars in soybean during like V3, V5. So second, third week of June. So that's typical. And the thing that was was hard about this year is that many of the plants were very small right and so usually you know v3 v5 i mean they can withstand some defoliation but for some fields that were hit particularly hard you had a lot of caterpillars feeding on small plants and so uh, you know kind of death by a thousand paper cuts type thing you know the defoliation adds up so there were some fields particularly in western iowa that were defoliated pretty significantly And so they usually have that second round of larval feeding after bloom. And so that could be like the second or third week of July. So that did happen, except that it just really took off. And you know why that happened, why we have unprecedented numbers of thistle caterpillar, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just basically all the stars were aligned for them to have enough food and they, they did well and they had that second generation and you know, people just really started to take notice. And maybe they've never seen them before, but they're really conspicuous as far as they stand out compared right. to other soybean caterpillars. Yep. Right. And they, they tend to form those silken webs on the upper canopy. So if you're just walking through soybean, you're gonna notice them very easily. So people were just finding them, finding them pretty easily and the defoliation is kind of unique compared to some of the other defoliators. I've been hearing as of last week, so kind of that first part of August, that people were finding eggs again. And so what this means is, yes, we probably could have a third partial generation. Uh, Normally what happens is, you know, we have second generation adults that start to make the move south again. They're they're migrating back south, kind of like monarchs do. And so uh, I think some of them are probably headed south, but they're also laying some eggs. And so we might have a third round of caterpillar feeding and soybean. Um, I think at this point, plants are big enough that they'll be able to support larvae and the defoliation won't be significant. I've never seen thistle caterpillars feeding directly on the pods or the seeds. Um, they're mostly leaf feeders. And so, you know, I think plants will be able to handle that. But if they were able to feed on, if you see, see any type of damage to the pods of the seeds, that would kind of raise my red flag up a little bit. Sure. So kind of like grasshoppers or bean leaf beetle can do late in the season. Mm-hmm. We don't want direct injury to the seeds or to the grain themselves. So just something to look out for as we enter kind of like this last part of the growing season is just 
don't walk away and assume that two generations are done. You want to stick around and and kind of look for all those late season uh, defoliators. Yeah. So is there is there a time frame there from if we see eggs to hatch or when we should start to look on that or what um, what areas should we be focused on more as far is it the late planted stuff still or maybe late maturing beans or is there a certain area that we should be focused in on scouting? Yeah, I think from what I can gather, they, they're an egg for about five to seven days and they will be feeding as a caterpillar for about three weeks. Hmm. So, you know, they start off small, but they get bigger and bigger. And of course, the bigger ones eat more. Um, so they lay single eggs on leaflets is my understanding. And so... I would be looking for late at late planted or uh, delayed mature or uh, later maturing yep. varieties, um, just because again it'd be a smaller plant and so the the bigger ones I think like I said I think they'll they'll be able to withstand the defoliation sure. but yeah later planted ones would be my my priority for scouting. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I, I I think you're right. I think I think later planted or the larger plants should be able to handle some of that. But we're, it just seems like we've been seeing unprecedented numbers, right? Yeah. I mean, it can only handle so yeah. much. Yeah, and the thing is, it's probably not just thistle caterpillar. I mean, people see those because they stand out. But this summer has been a, a bonanza of soybean defoliators. So <laughs> yes. I have seen more and more different species of caterpillars and soybean than I typically do. So it's not only been a great year for thistle caterpillar, but even green clover worm, soybean loopers, alfalfa caterpillar, a handful of different what I would call like woolly bears. Mm. Um, it's just if you're looking or sweeping and soybean, likely you're going to see a good mix of caterpillars. So it's sort of like you, I, I lump them all together. A bite is a bite. And so mm-hmm. um, I, it's just been good strong numbers for a bunch of different species. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, I would agree that it's just been kind of I think your word bonanza is probably the the, the most accurate technical term uh, to date there. That's for, that is for sure. Uh, so, so you say they don't overwinter. And so basically 2020, no correlation whatsoever. We just have to watch down south again and see, yeah. see what that brings us. Yeah, I mean, for a, a number of pests like corn earworm, black cutworm, true armyworm, potato leaf hopper, they all m- migrate to Iowa every year, but when and where they land is not really well understood even after all these years. And so I wouldn't necessarily say that if you got hit really hard this year, you can expect the same for next year. So I think it really kind of depends on the overwintering success in the south and then just those migratory winds that that bring them up here and just kind of dump them uh, throughout the landscape. So. Just careful scouting next year. Early vegetative yeah. might help us give an indication of what's to come for next summer. Good. Okay, I think that um, that's a good a good <laughs> explanation on the on the thistle caterpillars. I know um, a lot of questions have been coming in, and a lot of people saying that man, I drove to Sioux City or I drove drove over to Omaha this weekend, and my car is just covered. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, certainly uh, had a lot more people being aware of that. Um, of what's going on and where those pockets are at. So, yeah, people like the butterflies. I mean, they're yeah. amazed at, you know, the activity, especially around any type of landscape that has nectar resources. So not only for painted ladies, which are the adults of thistle caterpillars, but monarchs, and then just like the orange and white butterflies, like the sulfurs and everything. It's just, there's a lot of butterflies, of course, and people mm-hmm. tend to have, you know, heartstrings attached to the butterflies, not yep. so much the caterpillars, but yeah. just as you're driving, you're kind of, 
you're kind of making them kind of fluff up or activate and fly yeah. around. So yeah. yeah, it's kind of like yin yang. You like the butterfly, but not so much the caterpillar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I I think as you st- as you go west, primarily it seems like you know maybe a little bit more CRP acres, mm-hmm. and so if there's any pollinator uh, habitat in those, that yeah. maybe they migrating there um, as well. So it's, out mowing a little bit of mine, I front of my tractor just covered mm-hmm. in uh, early oh, yeah. early July so that's yep. uh, uh, certainly uh, something to watch there f- for edges of the CRP and, and pollinator plots and things like that so okay let's let's transition let's go to the um, another emerging um, uh, pest here and, and especially western Iowa again now a lot a lot of us are, are blaming the um, the Husker state to the to the west for this pest, the soybean gall midge. Um, you know, before this year, we kind of felt like this. There was just a couple hot spots for this, right? It kind of seemed like Cass County and and maybe a pocket in northwest Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, you know, as of all of a sudden last uh, last week, um, started getting some reports as far east as Dallas County now. Um, and I'm not, I haven't heard much from the northern part of the state, but. Um, have we seen much migration outside? I mean, in the northern part as well. Or are they are they continuing to move east pretty steadily, or is this something that we're just trying to get our uh, hands around? Yeah, I think in two thousand eighteen we had sixteen counties uh, along western Iowa, so that was all the way up to the Minnesota border, all the way down to Missouri, and then kind of along that western uh, border as well. So sixteen counties. This year, I think as of last week, you mentioned Dallas, mm-hmm. I think we're up to 22 counties. Mm. Um, the intensity within a county is highly variable, but as far as like positive detections, that's increased a little bit. And, um, you know, I think it's something, something close to 90 counties total for uh, South Dakota, Nebraska, Minnesota, Iowa, and even one, one county in northwestern Missouri. So mm. it's in five states now. I think close to 90 counties total. Hmm. So that number has almost doubled since last year. And so, yeah, the numbers are increasing. I would expect that over time we're going to see more central states, or sorry, central counties in Iowa uh, with positive detections. Yeah. So with this, explain a little bit about what this midge does, right? Mm-hmm. So it um, hard to detect early on, um, but certainly um, if you think about it, I have a feeling that if, if it's in Dallas County, then we may maybe have missed it for uh, a, maybe a year or two, right? Yeah. So if it if we're starting to see large pockets, then it had to have been there last year. Was it there the year before? So, yeah. you know, do we know much about their flights or, how, you know, just, just explain a little bit deeper there on once they get into the plant and then their, their life cycle too. Sure. So uh, a midge is a, a, a common type of fly. I think they kind of look like small mosquitoes. And so they would go through complete metamorphosis, egg, larva, pupa, adult. And um, so what people have been telling me is that when they see the adult, I have some, you know, I bring to field days and stuff is that, oh, they look really small. And so the adults... Uh, just because of their small, long-legged flies, and they're kind of, again, like a mosquito, they're pretty fragile, and so not likely to see the adults out and about in soybean. What you are more likely to see and what is the more important life stage to see are the larvae. So an, uh, the, the larvae or immatures of flies are always called maggots, so you could call it a larvae or a maggot. So what you're going to see 
in an infested plant are maggots that are feeding near the, near the soil line, usually zero to six inches from the soil, and they're feeding on the inside of the stem. So what happens is the, the maggots are feeding on that tissue and I think basically stopping all movement of, of water nutrients to the top of the plant. So the top sure. of the plant wilts and browns up very quickly after the larvae start feeding. And then from that point, it's, it's a kind of a quick death. So our estimates are about 10 days after hmm. you have a plant that, has, uh, that is infested with soybean gallmage, they will die. Hmm. And so unfortunately, it doesn't take very many midges to kill a plant. And so there's no sort of like, are they dead or alive? You know, how much will they contribute to yield? Basically, as my experience is that infested plants do not contribute. It's a hundred percent yield loss, so mm. it's it's a fairly devastating pest. And yeah. my experience, uh, you know, last year and this year is seeing dead and dying plants at the edge, the field edge first, and then as you have subsequent generations uh, in the summer, that 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 they move more to the field interior. And so we've been doing a couple different things just to gauge the life cycle. You know, how how fast can a generation turn around? by capturing adults in corn rootworm cages and then looking at infested plants and fields. And we think right now, just kind of like thistle caterpillar actually, it's a third round of feeding is happening right now. Mm. And it takes about 30 days to go from egg to an adult. So, mm. you know, maybe about three generations in a year is what yeah. we're thinking yeah. would, would happen. Yeah. yeah, and so I think you're right. Uh, midges have probably been um, scattered throughout Iowa longer than we had thought. And I think it's just because the injury looks similar to some fungal pathogens. And so people have been mistaking the soybean gallmage for sudden death or other type of edge effects where maybe some of the edge plants die or don't look so great. And so what I've been hearing about last week and this week is they're noticing that. They're starting to notice these brown patches getting larger and they're taking the time to stop in these fields or these plots and split some stems open and look for these maggots that are feeding on the inside of the plant. So it's hard to do when the plant is dead. So you want to be looking at yep. brown or dying stressed stress plants and splitting open the stems. And the first and second instars are difficult to see because they're clear. But the third instars, right before pupation, turn a bright orange. And so most people, their vision, they'd be able to see those third instars. Yeah. And so they're going to be flinging themselves out of the plant because they they drop down to the soil and pupate in the soil. So even though these these maggots don't have legs or anything like that, they're they're somewhat mobile in that they fling themselves. And so that's what people are seeing. You have an enlarged plant. The base of the plant is enlarged, sometimes cracking, um, sometimes corky. And if you, if you crack that open, you're going to notice basically that tissue is dead or dying, so it turns black, and those orange maggots are going to be pretty obvious. Yeah. What um, are are you working on much research then to look at timing for control or what uh, maybe what type of insecticide is best to control them? What what kind of research are we looking at yeah. there on the gall midge? Well, so much. There's a lot of low hanging fruit, but on the other hand, there's uh, more complicated types of research that's going to take a lot of years. So one thing that we're doing is just tracking degree days. Um, at these uh, locations where we have research set up. So I have some at the Northwest and, and Iowa and, and some in the Southwest. And so, because you can imagine the degree days that accumulate from South to North is, is quite different. So we're tracking degree days so that we have a better understanding of when did the adults come out? When are we first starting seeing that first uh, round of larval feeding? 
all the way through now, which is the third round of feeding. Yep. So we're going to track that. So hope, hopefully, because you know every summer is a little bit different. So hopefully, over time, we will have some degree day models for yeah. for people to time uh, first detection and and then subsequent treatments. This summer, I'm looking at a wide range of insecticide options, um, and so part of that would be looking at insecticidal seed treatments. Um, and then they have a few different modes of action with that. I also uh, am interested in some in-furrow applications, which mm. is maybe kind of weird to think about for soybean, but we're gonna give it a try. And then a wide variety of foliar insecticides. And a lot of these would be you know, either targeting adults or targeting the larvae. And as you can imagine, if you have a stem boring stem feeding insect it's really hard to control with a lot of the with with the products that we have in soybean because they're yep. contact or ingestion and right. they're not systemic and so I'm looking at a few I don't know if you would call them proprietary but they don't have labels in soybean yet because we really haven't had to have a need for that <laughs> but I'm definitely taking a look at that some with the seed treatments as well it might be a good way to reach the larvae that are feeding inside the plant is sure. if they can have systemic action right from the get-go. So yeah. I'm looking at a bunch of that at a couple locations and then I have colleagues in other states that are doing the same thing. Uh, what I can say is that I don't think that we got the adult timing for foliar insecticides quite right. Mm. So that's going to be huge is to try and make contact with that peak flight so those droplets touch the midges and they die. And I don't think we quite got that. And uh, just some anecdotal observations from seed treatments and infrared insecticides. It looks like it didn't have a big impact. It was just more of a slower death. Mm, <laughs> so see. those plants uh, still got still there. They, yep. they still got infested, and then they they're just dying a little bit later than the ones that had basically naked seed, no treatment mm. at all. But we're definitely going to try and refine that timing, applications, concentrations, yeah. so that we have a better idea for the future. Yeah, mm -hmm. is there? Is there a possibility for a fourth generation then yet this year in, in uh, the Gullmage? Yet to be determined. Um, from our observations last year on some of the research farms and commercial farms, it was hard for us to find larvae after the middle of August. And so they basically kind of shut down. And so that is what we're anticipating this year is okay. that there'll be kind of three generations and then they, they're over winter in the soil. Sure. So that's that's what we're thinking, but we're gonna keep collecting and, and, and assessing data basically until harvest, because we just don't know for sure. Right, right, mm -hmm. right. Well, it's good to, good to hear that we're trying to get a grasp on this. I mean, like I said, I think, I think it's out there a little bit more than we anticipate and certainly probably going to be a larger thing over the next probably, uh, probably year to three or four, you know, depending upon where this gets to. But it's glad that glad to hear what the research that we're is going on to um, try and understand this. So we've got a um, some recommendations. Yeah. Um, for the coming um, years. I mean, one thing I would say is that you know I used to work on a sunflower midge, and there's Hessian fly, orange blossom wheat midge. There's several other midges that are consistent field crop pests in other systems, and the long term solution for that because they feed on the inside of plants is host plant resistance. And so part of what we're doing as a, as a group in the Midwest is trying to dig into the germplasm and look at, you know, they have that soybean germplasm reservoir. So we're gonna dig back in there, see if there are any genetics that look like they can either withstand the feeding or just, you know, they just don't do well mm -hmm. in those. And so we're really gonna be working with soybean breeders at the USDA and through universities to do some screening uh, evaluations. And so that might be an option as well as looking yeah. at host plant resistance. Oh, good. 
Well, we've we've kind of talked a, a lot about those those two pests. And is, is there anything else that's uh, top of mind? It seems like those two have been uh, kind of taken the the main um, uh, fanfare, I guess, yeah. if you say uh, over the summer. Is there is there much else hitting? I've seen some. Uh, Cornworm uh, beetles uh, clipping some silks, uh, aphids to the north, um, you know, pockets probably, but I'm not yeah. sure. I don't have a good grasp. How, how big are the pockets? Or are they just pretty much the, the normal? Yeah, um, I have maybe just a few things, a few updates, just based on some of my research locations and then just hearing from people on, on the Twitter sphere and all that right. is that soybean aphids had a really slow start this year in Iowa, but they've really picked up as far as dynamics within field and between fields. And we know that because we see a lot of winged individuals, which they can, you know, they're highly migratory uh, in that phase. And so numbers in the, the last part of July and now the first part of August are really accelerating. Mm. And so at some of our plots, we're anticipating that they're going to reach threshold this week. Mm. And that's in the northwestern part. But also central uh, Iowa, right here at the Johnson Farm, just south of Ames, the numbers have picked up. Uh, very nicely, or I guess that I shouldn't say nicely, but um, they, they've been increasing um, numbers, you know, on a per plant and then the number of plants infested. So right. uh, it is a issue, especially with later planted soybean, is to continue to scout through seed set. And uh, so for some fields, that's going to be a, maybe a week, yeah. you know, a couple more weeks for that to happen. So sure. get out and scout for soybean aphid. Um, we're not in the clear with that. Uh, for on the corn side of things, yes. Uh, corn rootworm in some pockets, and it's kind of peppered throughout Iowa, uh, and so it's hard for me to kind of pinpoint a location, but um, some pockets have extremely high numbers, and so there's been some f performance issues with BT going on in which, you know, after a storm, you have an area yeah. of just a lot of down corn. Sure. And so I know the, the other Aaron in, in our department, Aaron <laughs> Gassman, is making collections based on, you know, people planted BT and they had quite quite a lot of injury, a mm -hmm. lot of adult activity, and and so that's happening. So it's it's worth time to go out and check uh, to see, especially if you've been in an area with a storm or whatever that um, that the corn is still standing. Um, and then just checking adult activity within the field is really yeah. important. Yeah. And then um, one other thing, if if. I know a lot of people had either delayed planting or replanting of corn, so there are some hybrids out there that are kind of the last green silks out in the neighborhood, and I've been hearing about some really high numbers of corn earworm. And so um, whether you're using BT or not, um, that is something to spot check if you happen to be the last green silks out, is to check that corn earworm activity, because some people were really taken by surprise last year, because we also had some Right. late planted corn last year it's just yeah. to kind of spot check that to make sure that the numbers aren't too high yeah my sweet corn has been full of it yeah so uh and more than normal so that yeah. was one of my questions i was yeah. going to ask is how's that how does that correlate then yeah. uh timing wise over to uh our row crop corn yeah and it's unfortunately a lot of the corn earworm which is a migratory pest from the southeast has become resistant to some of the bt proteins and so they migrate here and they carry that resistance and um, unfortunately, they you know it's not a silver bullet technology for those in field corn using BT. So no matter what the genetics, people should be scouting for corn earworm this year. Just really high numbers migrating to yeah. Iowa. Yeah. Well, we uh, 
we got a lot of migration going on here uh, this uh-huh. year, and so I think uh, it is definitely a bonanza of, <laughs> of things going on here this year. But, but certainly uh, appreciate um, appreciate your time here today and on going through a lot of these things and giving us an update here on what um, what Iowa State's working on uh, research wise. Uh, on all these things and, and good recommendations uh, for all this stuff. So, Aaron, uh, any uh, I'll give you a quick second here. Um, I know you guys have a podcast as well. Uh, you know, I'll let you promote that and, and sure. go into the details there. Sure. I have uh, one of the longest standing uh, podcasts for science. Uh, we found out with the, with the paper that came out last year. Mm. We're in our 10th season, uh, and I do it with my colleague, Dr. Matt O'Neill, who's also a soybean entomologist. And we have a podcast that we call the Soybean Pest Podcast. And we do a lot of what we just did today, kind of recapping some of our research, what we're hearing and seeing around the state. But we also dabble into some more just, I don't know, just side conversations. And so if you spend a lot of time in the car or the truck, which I think probably many of your listeners do, they might find it entertaining. (laughs) And then um, I try and just gather a lot of information on Twitter. So my handle is Aaron W. Hodson. And so if you happen to see anything, hear anything, I love to hear updates of what's happening through Iowa. Some of your people, um, you know, spend a lot more time in the field than I do. So I just like to get kind of those real-time updates and then photos and all that. So that's great. Good. Well, Aaron, thanks a lot for joining us today. It was great uh, great having you on the podcast. Uh, hopefully, we don't have another bonanza of a year, but certainly uh, something something is always on the horizon. Uh, I'm glad to see that we're ahead of it. So yeah. thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you.